Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Restoring the Military's Focus on Warfighting. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Well, thanks for that. Most importantly, thanks for being here, and thanks for waking up, as I know you did, proud to be in the United States of America. And ultimately, that's the context for what is going to be a riveting and hard-hitting panel discussion. In October 2022, Heritage established the Independent Panel on Military Service and Readiness to address what you and I and most Americans know is a serious problem facing the security of our country. And that's the infiltration of partisan politics, the ideology of the far left, into the United States military. After several months of hard work, our panel found that there are personnel policies and practices within our Department of Defense that are political and partisan in nature, and as a result are impeding the military's ability to recruit, to retain service members, and to remain focused on its warfighting mission. A poll conducted as part of this effort found that 65% of active duty military are concerned about growing politicization of the military. Now, what's at stake here is nothing less than the security of our country. A military that's less able to recruit new members to retain those currently serving, and one that's distracted from its mission will be less prepared to defend the country from any hostile state, especially our greatest adversary, China. While this problem is serious, it's one I believe we can solve and why we've asked these wonderful members of this panel to take the task of developing concrete policy recommendations. The solution here means we need to make serious changes to DOD policies that support the warfighting capacity of the men and women who choose to serve while defunding and eliminating the woke policies that please high-ranking left-wing Pentagon bureaucrats. Because if we have a military that is distracted by far-left ideology like critical race theory, then we'll be left with a force that's less ready to take on the Chinese Communist Party and do a disservice to those putting their lives on the line for our freedoms. It's for all of these reasons that on behalf of all of us at Heritage, I'm grateful for each of the panel members who sacrificed a lot of their time and thankfully let us borrow their, their brain power to put together this report. And I'm particularly proud of, of all of them, including my Heritage colleagues who are on it. I'll mention them all by name and we'll give them a, a rousing round of applause and gratitude at the end. Starting with Representative Mike Waltz, who chaired the panel, Mr. Mike Berry, Lieutenant General Rod Bishop, Ms. Rebecca Heinrichs, Mr. Jeremy Hunt, Mr. Earl Matthews, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, and Ms. Morgan Ortegas. Please give them a heartfelt round of applause. It's my pleasure to introduce you, or introduce to you, a friend of heritage and a personal friend, the chairman of the panel, you all know that Congressman Waltz is the chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness, is a colonel in the National Guard, and a combat-decorated Green Beret. He proudly represents North Central Florida, and we know that his experience and service to this nation has made him the perfect fit to chair this panel. It is a great honor to introduce to you a great patriot of our age, Congressman Mike Waltz. Thank you, Kevin, for, for those kind remarks. And I, and I too want to second your appreciation, your thanks uh, to our amazing panel members who took time, uh, to the Heritage Foundation, to the, the staff, uh, for just everyone involved for organizing this panel. It's such a pivotal time in our national security, in our foreign policy, uh, and in our military. But I I've said it, I'll say it again, I particularly want to thank the staff uh, that, that put hours and hours of work and research, and as I'll talk about in a moment, really put some empirical data 
behind a lot of trends and narratives uh, that a number of us in the national security space have, have seen. And without them, this, this wouldn't have been possible. So as Kevin mentioned, uh, over the last couple of years, we have seen a fundamental shift in our military culture, uh, in the military itself, and in the Defense Department's priorities. And to, to underscore that, bottom line is rather than focusing on military readiness, on war fighting, and preparing our soldiers uh, to hopefully deter the next war, but if necessary, fight and win it, uh, the Defense Department, in my view and in view of uh, this report and the, and the panelists, um, excuse me, and um, well, yeah, the panelists, the panel members, uh, the Department of Defense has drastically shifted off course. Uh, we do face now the most serious and alarming recruiting and retention crisis that we've seen since Vietnam. Uh, the Army in particular uh, is losing divisions worth of soldiers that they're not bringing in. Uh, and that trend wasn't just a one-year COVID-related episode like we are being told is the case. Uh, it's continuing this year. Uh, that means it will likely continue to the next because these are cumulative effects. And if we don't arrest uh, this downward trend, I believe the volunteer military could become in the coming years at risk. Uh, and, and that would have all kinds of follow-on consequences. Uh, in addition to that, our military has become hyper-focused uh, to its detriment, in my view, on climate initiatives and on other initiatives, such as preferred pronouns uh, and eco-friendly tanks, uh, rather than lethality. Uh, rather than putting bullets and bombs on enemy soldiers uh, and making them believe that we have the full capability intent to do so, that demonstration of strength is how we keep the peace. Uh, last I checked, there's no charging stations for electric tanks in Ukraine or in Africa uh, or, or really anywhere else uh, in the world. Uh, and also, last I checked, our enemies aren't worried about how diverse our squadrons are. Uh, never once, as a Green Beret, calling in air support, did any of my Green Berets worry about the sexual orientation of the pilot uh, or race, religion, social economic background. And I can guarantee you our enemies' bullets and enemy fighter pilots aren't worried about that either. The only thing they're worried about is whether we're American or not, of whether we are capable of defending ourselves and defeating them or not. And that's all our leadership should be worried about as well. Uh, these initiatives have taken a real toll on our military and its perception amongst the public. And we're seeing that in data, thanks to the Heritage Foundation and thanks uh, to other organizations that are actually putting some polling data and other types of data behind uh, what we're seeing. So according to the poll car carried out by Heritage, seven in 10 active military members, 68% have witnessed some or a significant level of politicization within the military, and just as many are gravely concerned about it. Uh, this is the, the real kicker. Just that many are saying because of that, because of the politicizing of our military, they would recommend that their children not join. Now, the vast majority of our active duty ranks are made up by, of, by the children or family members of our active duty service, now generations on from, from the draft. Uh, and so that's a double hit. That's a retention problem, someone leaving because of politicized military and then recommending the next generation uh, not join. So. This is because of a number of narratives, in my view. Uh, one is that the military is overrun with extremists and white supremacy. And when you have the first ever African-American Secretary of Defense as his first measure as Secretary of Defense, stand down the entire two and a half million man and woman force, not over training accidents, not over uh, other uh, critical issues like ship maintenance, 
over the overwhelming problem of extremism in the military, it's not hard to then come to the conclusion that perhaps families of color would not want their children to join a military that's overrun with white su supremacy to the point that you have to have a training standout. Here's the issue. The data doesn't back up our own Secretary of Defense's assertion because in a, in a study ordered by the Congress, the Pentagon found out that only 100 members out of two and a half million, for those who aren't great at math, 0.0005%, participated in any form of extremism, Islamic extremism, white supremacy, or what have you. So for 0.0005%, we expended five million man hours and tens of millions of dollars uh, and, and stood down the entire force and created this narrative. And then on the other side, uh, where the recruiting base is in the South and the Midwest, who wants their kid to join uh, a military and be told they're an oppressor or be told that they're privileged? Uh, we need to just knock this stuff out and start as leaders talking about the true benefits of service and what you as a citizen can contribute to this nation and then what you as a citizen can gain from serving uh, this nation. So China continues to plot its replacement, its ascendancy as a global hegemon and replacing the United States as a global leader. Uh, yet this was the first uh, priority of, the, of, of Secretary Austin. Um, my office has received numerous complaints. This is another key point that I want everyone to take away from. We're not making this stuff up. This isn't some kind of Republican election year gotcha talking point. I would much rather be talking about the very real issues uh, facing the readiness of our force right now. But when I have cadets, military members, their families sending me things like pronoun role play at West Point, sending me slides at the Air Force Academy that instructs 18-year-old brand new cadets, very impressionable future leaders of our military, not to say mom and dad, to say parent, not to say boyfriend and girlfriend, to say partner, not to say colorblind, that's offensive. Uh, we're not going to ignore that. I have a duty to respond uh, to those inquiries. So as I've told our military leadership, and we just had Secretary Austin and Millie yesterday uh, before the Armed Services Committee, when I stop getting this stuff from our service members, then we'll stop bringing it up uh, as, as a matter of course. And secondarily, I asked all of them and the senior enlisted leaders, the sergeant majors and master chiefs of, the, of all the services, they need to ask themselves why these cadets aren't comfortable going to their chain of command. Why do they feel as though they will be canceled or it will hurt their career uh, if they raise their hand and say, hey, I, I have an issue with this. Why do they have to come to a member of Congress? When I was a cadet at VMI, I would have been petrified to reach out to a member of Congress. So they need to ask themselves as a matter of an open door policy and command climate, why this stuff uh, isn't being presented uh, uh, to them. Um, I, I wanna talk about one other uh, incredibly important thing that, that this report addresses. Uh, we were able to, in legislation last year, stop the vaccine mandate. I wanna be clear uh, this isn't some type of anti-vaccine uh, initiative, but when the vaccine clearly showed itself that to not stop the spread, when you have a Secretary of Defense who's been boosted four times and yet still gets COVID, I mean, look, initially, of course, we don't want soldiers getting into tanks or submarines and infecting the rest of the crew, but when it became evident that you're going to infect the rest of the crew anyway, regardless of whether you're vaccinated or not, then that becomes a personal health decision. And oh, by the way, then as a matter of readiness, you have the most healthy, according to the data, the least affected portion of our population. Yet, despite the recruiting crisis, the military was on the verge of discharging another 20,000 on top of the 8,000 that it had already discharged. 
Uh, so we have some recommendations in this report. We address it. We need to restore those that still want to serve. Uh, we asked Secretary Olson directly yesterday in the committee of whether uh, <laughs> whether he's actually reaching out to those folks. The Pentagon is not. Uh, I find that just incredibly short-sighted and almost ideological. Uh, these were people that were signed up, trained, uh, at, at enormous cost to the taxpayer, have key skills that we desperately need. We should be doing everything we can to invite them back in uh, to serve again. Um, just, just a few other points in what is recommended in this very good report. And I would point everyone to the polling data and the other data that is, uh, that's in the, the back of the report. Uh, one of the issues that I have with our recruiting and retention crisis is we really don't have a lot of good data. And the only service that has demonstrated any, the Army, uh, was reluctant to release it. I see why when they did release it, because I just don't think uh, the, the, the survey that they are issuing to recruits is really very fulsome. So I would point everyone to that. The recommendations here uh, uh, point to a couple of things. A priority should be to eliminate the entire DEI construct. Uh, within the DOD. Offices and staffs were formally, appropriately, titled as equal opportunity and equal employment opportunity offices. That should be restored. Uh, we should have a full audit of the complete scope of the current DEI bureaucracy within the DED, DOD, including all staff programs and funding. We should bar the use of appropriated dollars to fund race-conscious race selections, assignments, accessions, or promotions. We have to return our military to being the greatest meritocracy uh, in the world. We should prohibit the instruction and propagation of these divisive teachings such as CRT. Uh, even though that is often, they're not labeled that way, it, the concepts of which are infused in various other teachings. We should pass a sense of the Congress uh, that the military should provide equal opportunity for all members, of course, uh, we absolutely should. Uh, and before funds are appropriated to Defense Department environmental projects and efforts, a report accompanied by the cost-benefit analysis should be submitted, affirming that the proposed policies or programs will improve warfighting capabilities, which should always be uh, the, the first uh, priority. Uh, these are common sense recommendations. They really are. Uh, our national defense policies should not be partisan. Uh, we share a con common interest as Americans in defending our and protecting our citizens. And in my humble opinion, the number one job of the federal government is to keep the nation safe. Uh, and in this modern era, to maintain the United States and the West's leadership role uh, across the globe. Uh, we must, as we face unprecedented threats, a China that is eclipsing us in key areas, uh, a Russia that has started the, the, the most significant land war and the most deadly conflict since World War II, Iran that's on the cusp of having a nuclear weapon, North Korea that already does and is fully operationalizing it. No, by the way, global terrorism didn't get the memo that the war on terror is over because the White House wanted it to be. It is still incredibly dangerous and can threaten us and hit us uh, at, at any moment. As all, with all of these things ongoing, uh, we can and we will do all we can to codify these recommendations uh, in legislation. We are working towards that end, and you have my commitment that I'm going to run through brick walls till we get it done. All right, thank you so much. Hey, man, thanks awesome. so much for your work on this. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Congress. I think I speak for everyone when I say I, I'm just thankful for you leading this fight in the halls of Congress. And our nation is better off because of you. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Congressman. Appreciate We're that.
Yep, we're going to sit here. Uh, I'm Jeremy Hunt. I'm the chairman of Veterans on Duty, and I had the honor of, of serving on this panel with just some extraordinary leaders. And as we were kind of uh, going through all the research and, and, and putting all this information in, in a report for you. Uh, so we're going to transition now to our panel discussion uh, part of the event, and I'm going to invite some of my, my colleagues on stage with me. Uh, first, we have Rebecca Heinrichs, who's a senior uh, fellow at Hudson Institute as well as Mike Berry, who is the director uh, of, of, for military initiatives at First Liberty Institute. Awesome. Appreciate it. I went a little too long, guys. Sorry. Felt <laughs> fired up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to kind of start off. We're going to, we're going to start off with having some, some questions going through the report. And then uh, if anyone in the audience has questions, you're welcome to, to ask those as well towards the, towards the conclusion of the event. And even if you're watching online, you can also get your questions ready. We want to hear from you as well. Uh, but to kind of kick things off, I wanted to talk. Uh, you brought up critical race theory towards the end of your remarks. Um, one thing I love about our report is that we're very, very specific in, in what we talked about in this. We didn't, we didn't speak in generalities. We tried to make it as, as clear cut and, and close to details as possible. Um, and one discussion I liked is how we kind of went through about why critical race theory uh, is so contrary to uh, the, the, the core principles of the military and why it is so harmful. Um, so I wanted to kind of first start off there. I'll start with you, Rebecca, just kind of working our way down on uh, what is it about critical race theory that, that we uh, you know, felt the need to talk about that in the report uh, and make it such a, a serious issue? Well, first of all, uh, thank you all for being here. Um, uh, and of course, thank you to my, to my fellow panelists. The reason that I thought that this report was so important was because um, I spend a lot of time paying attention to the, the threats facing the country. And so the United States is, we're already on our back foot and there's a lot of work we gotta do. And uh, what's going on in our military right now is, is incredibly serious. Um, our, uh, the congressman laid out all the different problems with it, but, but for me, um, that I, 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 got, I, was, I find it alarming that a lot of our senior military leadership denied that this was going on when we can see it. There's overwhelming um, anecdotal evidence that all of us um, have, have heard from, but then you also can just see statistically what's going on. And, and I've long been tracking the critical race theory and how it's really anathema to the, to the American idea, fundamentally. Um, because critical race theory is really, it's a, it's a hermeneutical tool, meaning it's a, it's, a learning, it's a learning system of how you make sense of the world. That's, that's what it is. And, and it holds to ideas that, um, that are, again, fundamentally anathema to the American idea, but then would be especially deadly in a military um, environment because it, it holds to ideas of um, uh, identity essentialism, racial essentialism. Um, gender essentialism. This is this is central to, to who a person is, and then it divides you divides you up based on this sort of system of oppression, and which of course is is really it turns the idea of equal opportunity. Everybody sort of you know everybody born equally and of equal dignity and worth uh, before the Creator, and then based on your own work ethic and your own um, determination that you can make something of yourself, and that gets the congressman's point about meritocracy. And so to have CRT, it's bad enough that you have CRT um, really pervading uh, businesses, but to have it actually pervade uh, the Department of Defense, it's deadly. It means you have to lower standards in order to have equitable outcome rather than equality of opportunity. Because you have to lower the standards for women if you want as many women to qualify for the same kind of, um, of jobs and billets that, that, they, that the men have. You have to. Um, so, so anyway, so, so that would be my, my short little an medium answer, I guess, I say, <laughs> um, on that. It's a huge question. It's very complex, and that's why it's so frustrating when it comes to policymaking, because it, it's very academic and philosophical. And it's like sometimes it's very challenging to, to pin some of these guys on, um, on what's going on, but, but that is really the heart of the problem. Yeah, I, if I could just dive in, and, and I want to make a distinction. Uh, this is the distinction we all remember, you know, General Milley's kind of blow up at the hearing a few years ago that was actually in response to my questions uh, to Secretary Austin uh, about CRT in the military. Uh, and I have no issue, zero, encourage, we should have a wide-eyed view of history uh, and, and the very checkered uh, discriminatory past that this country has. Uh, and oh, by the way, our efforts to continue to move forward 
towards full equal opportunity for, for all Americans. Of course we want our military to be a diverse, of course we want it to be inclusive, but it's the equity portion mm -hmm. that is so dangerous when you have a standards-based military. If you start eliminating standards to be a pilot or to be a doctor, uh, and I don't know how with elite units you have equitable outcomes, at the end of the day in the military in particular, you have to have uh, the best of the best. So we have to make that distinction. It often gets conflated in this debate between, between a clear-eyed view of our history versus how we move forward as a country and how we maintain a meritocracy as a military. And that's, a, that's an incredibly important distinction to make. Absolutely. Mike Good. I would just add that, to me, the, the root problem with critical race theory is that it, it often devolves into teaching that uh, America is somehow inherently evil um, or, or flawed. And certainly we have our flaws, as the Congressman pointed out. We don't need to run or hide from, from those flaws, but to emphasize them and to create our entire identity as a nation around them, I think, is, is very counterproductive to the role of the military, which is to fight and to deter wars. And instead, I think that to replace critical race theory, we should have what we should be teaching young Americans and our service members as well is the things that make America great, right? The, the, the things, the, the concepts, the ideas around which we can unify, uh, the notion of e pluribus unum, right, from many one. And instead, CRT essentially inverts that, right? And it, and it says, from one, we are many. And I think when you ask many, I, certainly not all, but when you ask many service members, what motivates you to serve? Why do you serve? And for a lot of them, uh, I'll speak for myself, it was the notion of, of this, this notion of duty, right? Of uh, I have an obligation to give back to this country because it has given me and my family so much. And I love my country. And in fact, I'm willing to put my life on the line for this country. And now we're in, a, in an era in which our young people are being told America's not worth sacrificing for. America's not worth serving. America's not worth risking your life for. And then we sit and scratch our, 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 our leadership scratches its, its collective heads and says, why are people not willing to join and sign up? <laughs> well, because you've just spent the last you know, 12 years, 15 years of their lives telling them how awful this place is. Yeah, and uh, just final point, I know you want to get on to Mitty Boar, but, okay. but uh, I think it has real implications for civilian oversight of the military as well when you're telling and teaching uh, at a fundamental time in their lives our future military leaders that the civilian uh, institutions overseeing the military uh, is, are fundamentally racist, misogynist, colonialist, and, and, and really um, bad institutions systemically. Mm -hmm. Not that the people within them have flaws, but that systemically they are, they are bad. It's pretty, pretty tough to then ask someone to follow orders and go die for it. That's exactly right. I mean, it's also, too, just for the military as a whole, if we have this over-focus on our differences and what separates me from you, and that, that really kind of destroys the cohesion of the team. I mean, we, we need to be focused on our commonality, on a common purpose, fighting and winning our nation's wars. And so if we get too distracted by all of these um, types of uh, individual identities in the military, it's just not the place I for I had a, a World War II veteran who, who I was close to since passed on in Jacksonville, Florida, coming from the segregated South, never really had any kind of meaningful relationship with a person of color, just wasn't allowed. His Brown's the corner in his first ship in the Navy, 19 years old, and his bunkmate was black. And they ended up becoming lifelong friends. They ended up, because of that forcing function of service, figuring out all the things that they had in common, right? And, and having a much deeper understanding, uh, rather than walking in the door and being told how different they were, and, yeah. um, and, and I just, I, I feel strongly we need to get back to just that mentality. One, one more point yeah. on this, yeah. too. It really is, this, this came up in our discussions when, when we were writing this, is it, it really is creating factions in the military, right. which is just, when, when, when you know, when you, when, you're, when you go through all the, the training, you, you, are, you are trying to create this unit cohesion out of many one, 
Um, and so by, by actually having this, this, this idea of, again, of these gender sort of essentialism, you are actually creating factions that otherwise maybe weren't there or that you actually should be trying to smooth over for right. the purposes of creating um, the most successful uh, military uh, in the world. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also amazing to me how before we had equal opportunity programs and what diversity meant something entirely different when, when many of us were served. I mean, even just myself in the last few years, it's entirely changed. And now that whole program has now been replaced with this new DEI bureaucracy mm -hmm. and they've redefined what many of that mean, what much of that means. Of course, we want a military uh, where everyone serves free of discrimination and has equal opportunity. Uh, but that, that kind of moral uh, imperative, the DEI bureaucracy has stretched that far beyond that now. Now it's we're going to try to assure outcomes, and then that's the danger there. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, if you ask you know, certain folks, on, on the, some of your colleagues on the Hill, you know, they'll just tell you, oh, well, just Republicans just don't like diversity. This is not even true. It's just that the problem is how they're trying to go about it uh, and the type of progressive political uh, ideas that they're lacing and some of the training that's going on now. Um, I want to try to move on to the second question. <laughs> I, I think we're going to get through like maybe three questions now. Okay, but um, so the second question, we we uh, in, in our report we talked about some of the new standards the DOD is, is now kind of instituting uh, to, to, to uh, reportedly level the playing field. Um, the DOD, for example, um, has now decided to discard its gender-neutral fitness test um, and, and has looked at these different kind of ways of making sure that, um, that they are supposedly level, leveling the playing field by changing certain standards. Um, I want to talk about that and kind of why is that harmful to military readiness and kind of what are the issues that you see if we kind of let this practice go on? One small point of correction, but it's a point of pride. They didn't, the Army didn't decide to, uh, to go back to a gender-neutral physical standard my amendment in the last defense bill told them to uh, in, in law. And, but this is an important point. Let's make physical standards according to what the job needs. Yes. Very different physical standards to be an artillery man or woman or to be an infantry man or woman than it is to be a cyber warrior uh, or to be a cook. Uh, and so, you know, one of the justifications for having this bifurcation was that, well, we'll dissuade women from some of these, you know, by having these tougher standards. Let's make it according to the job. This is about standards, not race, religion, social economic background, what religion you are, whatever. It's the standards to do the job, and the jobs are different, require different things. Now, we'll see how they implement it. Um, so, you know, one of the things I've learned in Washington is it's incredibly hard to pass a law, and then it's even harder to get the executive branch to follow the law. But um, that's where the oversight function will come in. And, and look, uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, you can't have, I, I, and I actually had a number of Democrats vote with me uh, on this one, because I think it undermines the achievement of women in combat arms, since we've opened the combat arms. You can't have a woman go through Navy SEAL training, Ranger school, Special Forces training, where the standards are incredibly difficult and high, but then send her to lead an infantry unit and say, well, you have a lower standard than your soldiers that, that you're leading, as though the artillery round is lighter for women than it is for men. It's just, it's, it's nonsensical. And so we'll see if they get to that rationalized, you know, kind of standard that we, we did get into law and it's gonna force some change. Absolutely, and thank you for, for leading the fight with that and getting things done. Anybody else wanna add on on that? No, I mean, I, I would just, um say on this too, I mean, one of the, this was actually, I'm glad you brought this one up on page 21 of the report. It talks about the different lowering of standards. Um, and, it, and it's kind of amazing how we, we as a country have, have gotten so, I think, kind of um, not used to, it's not the right word, but you really kind of have to, you have to object to their, their fundamental assumptions here. I mean, I watched the hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee um, uh, with uh, the Secretary of the Army on this, and she acted sort of confused by the questioning. You know, it's like she didn't even understand what the problem was. Lowering the, the, the physical fitness standards for, for in, in, in order to, to make sure that women can have the same kind of jobs. I mean, you look at this. When the Army lowered the minimum standard for the two-mile run to a dawdling 21 minutes, I think that was my, tw I think I did that when I was pregnant. Rebecca, and you know what? You know, uh, uh, Democrat Senator Tammy Duckworth, who lost both her legs in combat, said, uh, I could run that. Right. Faster than, than uh, and supported uh, Tom Cotton, and, and I mean, he put it on the Senate side, and I put it on the House side. Yeah. I mean, and this gets back to, you know, uh, 
so I see something like that, and I find it's just it's it's astounding to me. It's 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 frankly it's offensive, um, but it it also gets back to something that is much harder to quantify, but I think is so important. And this gets back to this where we, we mentioned it several times in the report. You want to have a military with a strong warrior ethos, mm -hmm. and if you are doing things, if you look at that, you look at the 18, 19 year old folks who are coming in here and trying to meet these standards and you see these people who can't possibly meet these standards but you lower the whole thing it's demoralizing it is it is demoralizing and so it, it yes you have like the no kidding it's going to hurt your entire you know this great quote here the presence of just a handful of individuals who cannot run two miles faster than a 21 minutes has the potential to derail a training exercise not to mention actual combat patrol of course it's also just demoralizing for the entire military. Who are the kind of people you're trying to draw into the military? They want to do something hard, important, selfless, selfless, something for their country. They love this country. Um, and so I think that if you water it down and make it something so that you take away something of what is hard and frankly exclusive about the warriors who join the military, um, I think that that obviously is going to have an impact on recruitment. Mike, I, the next question I want to go to you on, on this. I want to transition to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 vaccine because we, we dealt with this in the report as well. And it was one of the more controversial sections because there, there are different views on this, even, you know, even within some of us that we see the world in much of the same way. Um, the 2023 NDAA, thanks to a lot of the work that the Congressman did, eliminated that the requirement for the vaccine mandate uh, for our service members. Um, but there are still a lot of lingering impacts of, of the vaccine mandate. And I, I know you've done just a, a ton of research into this, Mike. I wanted to kind of hear from you about the kind of what those lingering impacts are um, and also kind of what's still happening and kind of bring us up to date on the issue. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start with a, a caveat and a disclaimer. So the caveat is that uh, I think it's safe to say that we as a panel um, took no official position on um, you know, whether DOD should have issued a, a vaccine mandate in the first place, or you know, we're certainly not a medical panel, so we, we didn't really take a position on the, the medical efficacy of the, of the vaccine uh, or which vaccines were more effective or not effective. Uh, and then my disclaimer is that uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the uh, attorneys representing the Navy SEALs who challenged uh, the Navy and their, and their vaccine mandate. But I think what we've discovered through the course of the Navy SEAL litigation and also a number of the other uh, cases around the country that arose as a result is uh, really in, in two factors. One, we have an all-volunteer force, all right? And, and that's throughout world history, uh, a, a nation the size of the United States with as much territory that we have that we have to defend that's actually a relatively rare thing, right? To have uh, a military, a standing force that is all volunteer, where we don't use conscription. In order to have an all volunteer force, it requires uh, people to have, in the military we use the phrase, special trust and confidence, mm -hmm. right? You have to, and that's a two-way street. There has to be trust and confidence between the commander and the subordinates. And when that trust is lost, when the commander does something that the subordinates think that he's either going to get us killed or she is incapable of leading us to a successful mission accomplishment, you lose that trust. And it's almost impossible, right? Congress, I'm sure you can speak. It's almost impossible to get it back once it's lost. Right? And so it's not just the fact that there was a vaccine mandate that destroyed that bond of trust. It's the manner in which it was administrated and, uh, and enforced. That's what's causing the erosion here. And in the, in, the con in the context of recruiting and retention, here's how that plays out, all right? That uh, you have thousands, tens of thousands of service members who, in, in this era, right, we, we always talk about this thing of like the, you know, the, the low information voter. Well, you know, the newsflash is that our service members are high information service members. They're probably more plugged in and connected with what's going on uh, than, than probably at any other time in our history. And so they, they, they know uh, they have very good, you know, we call it the Lance Corporal Underground and the, and the Marine Corps. <laughs> and, and so information travels very quickly. And when they begin hearing that, well, wait a minute, this vaccine is not FDA approved, it's only available under an emergency use authorization, and, and according to 10 USC 1107A, 
The Secretary of Defense actually has to submit a written request to the President for a, an affirmative waiver of informed consent in order to make a vaccine mandatory. Right? I'm not trying to get down in the weeds. I'm just saying th these, these are the type of chatter that our service members are having with each other. And they say, okay, and then and they ask, well, what happens if I have a religious objection to this vaccine because of the asserted or purported link to aborted fetal cells or because of some other reason, so on and so forth. And then when they submit those religious accommodation requests or even ask the question to their commands, uh, what rights do I have right, as a service member, as a person of faith to object to this? And the commander says, you have to get the vaccine or else, right? It's a, it's a direct order. That is a direct order. You get the vaccine, or in some cases, they were threatened with court-martial. In other cases, they were involuntarily separated. And then in the very next breath, they see that there are medical exemptions available. There are administrative exemptions available. People ask, what's an administrative exemption? If you are less than six months away from separation or retirement, you, they wave a magic wand and say, you don't have to get the vaccine. And, and service members, again, they're paying close attention because they're high information and they say, well, well, the DOD, Secretary of Defense, is telling me the reason why this mandate, this vaccine is necessary is to protect the force, right? That this is a highly trans transmittable disease that can cr cause death or serious bodily harm and we can't have any exceptions. And they say, but the guy who still has six months left on the clock, somehow he magically can't get COVID or the person who's participating in a clinical trial in which they're receiving a placebo is magically unable to get to contract COVID. And so they, they say, well, what, there's a disconnect there. I'm not being told the truth. Either, either my commander and, and leadership is not telling me the truth or they're completely incompetent and don't, they don't, themselves don't know the truth. And, so, and then when they submit the religious accommodation request, the service member who has the medical waiver or the administrative waiver is treated as if there's absolutely no issues at all, right? And then the person who has the religious accommodation is forced out, uh, is put into uh, what we say, you know, we, they're, go, they're told to go sit in the corner in color. And that's the breakdown of trust and confidence because they now immediately sense the disparity uh, between, between how they're treated. And one group, and, and we heard the Secretary of the Navy himself say, uh, I believe he said in response to, to the NDAA, mm -hmm. all this is going to do is create two classes of service member, the vaccinated class and the unvaccinated class. He's telling the American people, telling Congress to their faces, we're going to begin segregating based on this. And when service members hear that, right, remember I said at the beginning, it's an all-volunteer force. For recruiting and retention, the, in an all-volunteer force, the military has to present a, an appealing option to people, to, to mostly to 18 to 24-year-olds, to say, serving in the military is a better and more attractive option than whatever else is out there, college, you know, vocation, et cetera. And people of, people of that age, the 18 to 24-year-old age, are saying, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested because I don't know if I can trust you. Or if they're already serving and, they're, and their period of enlistment is coming up to an end, the military has an obligate or an option at least to say, we would like you to stay in. We think military service is a better option for you than whatever else is out there. And they say, thanks, but no thanks. I, I don't trust you anymore. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. If I can pop in real quick. Oh, Congressman, were you going to? No, no, oh. I'm good. I was going to say, yeah. just take everything he just said, and then you pile on top of that on page 21 of the report, and the administration chose not to contest a court ruling allowing service members who are HIV positive to serve in combat zones, overturning years of rational health policy in favor of inclusiveness. So, I mean, you can see the reason that we, the COVID issue was, was separate for this, where we got the panelists to agree to, because obviously you want service members to be vaccinated and, and safe for, 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 for the force, um, is because of the political nature of, of the way it was carried out. And that's a perfect point to, to, to talk about now because our Department of Defense has gotten more and more over-politicized. Um, and we've talked about this, in the, especially in the context of the military recruitment crisis. And as many of you know, uh, the Army just at the last end of the last 
fiscal year, uh, came up 15,000 soldiers short of its recruiting goal. Uh, this is the worst crisis we've been in since the advent of the all-volunteer force. And our report, we a lot of us are focusing on a lot of the issues that have led to that are just this over-politicization of the military. Um, just a couple of days ago, I had an honor of testifying before the House Oversight Subcommittee on National Security, the Border, and Foreign Affairs about this issue. And one of, the, one of your Democrat colleagues asked me, he said, well, what do you mean there's this politicization? And one of the best examples is our Department of Defense Secretary, uh, just last summer, making this public statement uh, at the, at the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade saying that you know the Department of Defense is going to now fund service members to travel to other states to seek abortions. And not only that, we're actually going to give you three weeks of paid vacation if you are seeking abortion. So he shoved the Department of Defense into one of the most polarizing political issues of our time. And many of us who, who have a very different view on that issue than, than the Defense Secretary thought that was extremely uh, offensive and extremely uh, uh, an, an act that would politicize an organization that must stay apolitical in order to carry out its mission. Um, and so we talked a lot about some of these instances of over-politicization and how it impacts recruitment. And I'm going to cue the slides because we even conducted a poll talking about some of the, how, it, how it ends up affecting recruitment over time and how the American public sees the uh, Department of Defense is becoming overly politicized. Um, I wanted to go, uh, Congressman, to, to hear your thoughts on this, and then we're going to turn over to uh, some of the audience questions next. Well, I mean, I, I just mentioned it in my remarks. I think it's a, it's you've got uh, a, a retention crisis and a recruiting crisis, and when you have our military, about 60 to 70 percent staffed by military families, um, then it's it's a double hit. And just quick. Um, just quick point on the numbers. The Army fell short 15,000, but when they saw what was coming, they lowered their goals by 10. So it was actually 25,000. So far, we think they're short about 10,000 this year. Uh, so we're still trending in the absolute wrong direction by, by huge numbers. Uh, and so to even if you write the ship, you're looking at five to ten years to, to make up uh, to make up those numbers. And then on the retention side, it's critical skills yeah. like cyber, like pilots, uh, like physicians uh, that we've invested years and millions of dollars into as a military and as a as a society. So it it, it truly is uh, detrimental. It truly is a crisis. And at some point, uh, we can't just the, the the military can't just keep lowering its end strength goals. At some point, we're going to have a, a, a huge red flag, red star cluster that says we can't meet mission. And then what? Yeah. Uh, and and the options aren't good. But I'm just really thrilled to act, see some actual data. Again, I asked every one of the senior enlisted leaders for all of the services to present us what data they have around the recruiting retention crisis. Only the Army, at least at that hearing, says they have any, mm -hmm. and then we had to fight with them to get access to it. And it, and it, of course, won't, probably won't surprise you, paints a very different picture uh, than, than what Heritage is very good poll. And, and, and again, I would point members of the media to the actual methodology uh, behind the polling. I think it's, it's solid. It's very good. We got, we got a 50-page climate change report and a whole strategy, but very little information from the Department of Defense about what they're going to do to combat the recruitment crisis. Um, I want to turn to audience questions. Uh, if there's anyone who, who wants to ask a specific question, uh, we'll go to, to the gentleman in the back here first uh, for anybody on the panel here. Well, thank you all for your uh, contribution to the report, and thank you for being here today. I wondered if it's in the purview of the report or so I, I wonder if it's in the, the purview of the report or in your individual interests to contrast what's going on in our Department of Defense with the Chinese or Russian or other militaries. I've seen some well-done propaganda videos, recruitment videos coming out of those respective countries. Um, has Have any of you been aware of any uh, reports or intelligence on what's going on in those respective militaries, comparing and contrasting with what is happening uh, in our own? I'll take that. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen any re reports on that, but I'm, I'm so grateful for your question because I think that this is a critically important point, and I would lose sleep tonight if I, if I didn't get a chance to make this point. Um, our, our adversaries are seizing on this. 
so their propaganda videos, I mean, they, they, they know exactly kind of what's going on in this country. And so it's propaganda. So they're, they're creating propaganda videos that show that they're anti-woke and that we're woke and that our military is weak and that they are strong. I do want to make the, the uh, uh, foot stomp this point. So if this point is not lost at all, the United States military is still the best military in the world. That's right. Okay, so we are targeting a solvable problem. And, um, and, and so, I mean, if you, you take, you, I mean, I, I get briefings all the time and I interact with the military and work at the Pentagon all the time. And I would still take our junior officers to our adversary senior officers any day of the week. Um, and so what we're trying to do is save the military from a pernicious ideology that can have a very negative effect on a warfighting capability. And, and so that, that's the purpose of this report. So I um, appreciate the question, but, but, uh, but I don't, I mean, I, I think our adversaries are just, they're, they're playing on this and they know how to, to press our buttons to try to, to make the point that you just made. We've seen propaganda on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, demonstrating and furthering the narrative that the West is in decline, that democracy is too fractious, that uh, capitalism is an inherently uh, unfair, Right. So and that now the United States and I've, I've heard this actually from ambassadors of allied nations that that jihad won and and the West lost. Uh, we've seen it with the Chinese spy balloon incident, further evidence that we're too weak and fractious to lead. But when you see it blasted our allies in the Philippines, Taiwan uh, and 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 uh, when you see it uh, in jihadi sites uh, all over then yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely being used against us. And to Rebecca's point on this being a solvable problem, absolutely. We have the most kick-ass military uh, in the world, but we need to have our adversaries believe that and our allies believe that and our prospective recruits um, uh, believe that. So it's not, you know, because we constantly get back from the Pentagon, look, this was, you know, the, the Air Force Academy orientation, that was two hours out of all this other type of training that we get. But you're planting seeds with very young leaders uh, on that piece. And then from a procurement standpoint, the M1 Abrams tank, just take that as one example, uh, has been with us now for 40 years. Uh, and so if you're starting to put the wheels in motion for electrified fighting vehicles. I mean, everybody kind of laughs and shakes their head, but yet we're now seeing research and development dollars being you know, put down that road. You go to the, the Association of the US Army to their huge trade show and industries responding, right? And, and starting to devote because they're responding to what the Pentagon's telling them to respond. So once these massive long-term 30, 40 year procurement programs get steamrolling, then before you know it, it's too big to fail. We don't have anything else. We, we have to keep pouring good money after bad. And when the entire premise is to have a less carbon emitting vehicle rather than the most lethal, then that's why, to Rebecca's point, we have to nip this stuff in the bud and we've got to do it sooner than later. Any well, others? Oh. All right. So well, I was going to say just, well, no, that was great. Yeah. One, one more point on that too, yeah. I mean, d d d d real quick. It's also just an opportunity. It's actually, it costs us. I mean, we go through and give the examples that have already been in other reports of the, of the military spending time on this. You know, whenever, whenever our senior military says, it's only two hours here, it was just this orientation here. It's planting seeds. It's also diverting their attention on something that is div divisive, but then they're not, they're not reading books on how to deter and fight and win the Chinese. They're not, they're not studying what, what, makes, what would make the United States successful against our adversaries. There's a real, I mean, when you see these correlations between the accidents in the military with, the, with what's going on with the kinds of attention that these folks are spending, spending their time and attention with other things unrelated to keeping ships operating well and aircraft, you begin to wonder. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the other point. It's a, it's a real, real no-kidding cost. Yeah, absolutely. Just a quick add-on. Uh, for those who doubt the value uh, of, of strategic propaganda, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the pullout of, the, of our last troops, combat troops from Vietnam. So it's been 50 years. I'm actually taking a course, a war, a war college level course right now on the Vietnam conflict. And one of the things that was really impressed upon me in that course is this, in the early 70s, uh, 70, 71, 72, towards the very, very last days 
of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, uh, we were inflicting heavy, heavy military casualties upon the North Vietnamese uh, who were supported by, by uh, China and Russia. And we were militarily, we held the upper hand uh, to a significant degree. But through propaganda, uh, and especially the way that they were targeting the Nixon administration at that time, uh, they held the upper hand on the propaganda side so that the American people actually believed that we were losing, right? And it was, it was, it was withering the American people's resolve. And once you lose the will to fight, I don't care how great your technology is, the will to fight is the key. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is the key problem here with CRT and these other DEI initiatives is it's eroding our will to fight. Yeah. Uh, very much like we said at the beginning, right? Why would you want to sign up and fight for something that you've been taught is bad? Yeah, exactly right. Um, good, so one question here. Yes. Bring the mic over. Dr. Myrtle Alexander, Institute for Academic Management. My question is, sorry. Dr. Myrtle Alexander, Institute for Academic Management. Uh -huh. My question is, have these initiatives and practices also infiltrated our JROTC and ROTC in the academic world? And is there a fear that it will come down to that for our students? It's already well, there. Yeah. yeah. And we know it's certainly at our service academies, which is where we're at West, at my alma mater at West Point, they're teaching, you know, they're giving lectures on whiteness and giving all this extra, you know, politicized progressive talking points. The Air Force Academy, they now have cadet DEI officials going around writing up their classmates. Uh, yeah, we had a word for the kind of people like that, you know, that, that would write up their classmates when I was there. I won't repeat it here. Uh, but, uh, but that you know, it's, still it's, in existence. It's, it's gotten absolutely outrageous. And, and on the JROTC point, I'm thankful it was JROTC that got me interested in the military. And it was, I had two ROTC instructors uh, who told me, who happened to be black, and they said, look, you are going to get into the academy based on merit. And they worked out with me every day to get me into, into physical shape. And that's what we're standing to lose when a lot of young Americans don't have that anymore. Can, can I draw attention to this? Page 20 of the report, just to put even more meat in the bones here. Um, uh, in the, right after January 6th, when Secretary Austin had this, you know, the, the stand down here, in the, def in the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute, that's a DOD school and research laboratory focused on supporting readiness, they published a student guide entitled Extremism. In it, it says, nowadays, instead of, this is a quote, nowadays, instead of dressing in sheets or publicly espousing hate messages, many extremists will talk of individual liberties, states' rights, and how to make the world a better place. <laughs> I got news for you. You know, don't tell them about the Heritage Foundation and the Hudson Institute. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and the US Congress, for that matter. So, um, you know, this, th these are things that and I appreciate so much about how we were able to get this report together and how, how hard the staff worked at, at, at doing drafts and drafts and drafts for, for the panelists is you really, we pointed to what is actually there so that these senior officers can't say it doesn't exist. It is in the documents that That's you're right. writing and that you're pushing upon the troops. Uh, just one quick point on junior OTC. The services have repeatedly, because I'm, I'm a separate conversation, but an advocate of getting us back to national service. Doesn't have to be in uniform, all kinds of ways to serve and, and providing educational benefits in exchange for service rather than just throwing them out there mm -hmm. uh, for free. But the services have repeatedly come back and told us there's no correlation between students who participate in junior ROTC and then join the military, that it actually doesn't help recruiting. Hmm. They can't show me the data. They can't show me the lack of correlation, but they just keep resisting uh, my efforts. And now I've had some great conversations with Roger Wicker over in the Senate to expand junior ROTC. And, uh, and look, we have to get back to a service-oriented mindset to each other, to our neighbors, to our country. Uh, and you get all of the other benefits of leadership, discipline, followership, teamwork, yeah. and doing it with people who don't look like you. You know, it may not come from the same background. Yes, we have yet a follow. Oh, sorry, but I, I was just going to yeah. put a, a finer point on that. So, most of us have probably by now heard about the the, the race discriminatory uh, admissions cases that went up before the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and there were oral argument just a few months ago. Uh, the Solicitor General of the United States, so that's the attorney that represents and, and speaks on behalf of the United States, was asked, was offered uh, a portion of the argument time, right. and in her argument. Uh, she could have talked about anything in defending these racially discriminatory preference policies at schools like University of North Carolina and, and Harvard and elsewhere. And she decided to, to use her time 
uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court to talk about how ROTC. And she said that we must have racially discriminatory admissions policies because of ROTC. And that without them, uh, without these equity-based uh, uh, policies, uh, ROTC will suffer. And, and she actually even went so far as to say that there, because diversity and DEI initiatives are a, a matter of national security, less than one week. Oh, go ahead. I was say, yeah. Less than one week apart from that oral argument, there was a hearing right here in Washington D.C. at the Court of Appeals uh, in a different case involving a U.S. Marine who is a member of the Sikh faith who wanted to be able to be in the Marines while maintaining his Articles of Faith uh, as a member of the Sikh faith, and the Marine Corps. Uh, the Department of Justice attorney in that case who argued on behalf of the Marine Corps that this, mar that this Marine should not be able to have his Articles of Faith. His argument was, we need uniformity. Everybody has to look the same. <laughs> we can't allow anybody to look different for the sake of national security. And so I go back to my earlier comment that when service members hear, hear that, yeah. their heads explode and they say, they're, they're talking to us out of both sides of their mouth, and we don't know who to believe. Can I just add to I'm that, done. too? There is no, I keep going back to actual data, science, you know, aside from the narratives. Trust the and science. We, <laughs> we can't get the services to show us any correlation between a more or less diverse unit and one that is more or less lethal or ready for combat. It's it's a narrative. Of course, we want uh, uh, diversity of thought and approach and what have you, but they can't point to actual percentages that then make an infantry unit, a squadron, um, a ship more. The 442nd RCT, yeah. most decorated unit in, in American history, zero diversity. Yeah. Because they were 100% right. Japanese American. And it's right. actually not diversity of thought that they want. It's not diversity of right. thought that they want. They're actually, it's actually propaganda for uniformity of thought. And that's what they're indoctrinating, which is exactly what you don't want. They've got, to your point, the diversity question completely on its head. Yeah. Well, you can see why we enjoyed making this report, being able to work with people like the folks that are on the stage with me. It was, just a, it was an honor serving with, with all of you. And I thank everyone for participating in this event and those watching online. We really appreciate uh, your interest in this topic. We're going to keep fighting on this. We thank you to the congressmen, to other leaders all here who are leading the fight to make sure our military gets back to what uh, it's intended to do, to fight and win our nation's wars. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.